first reading is from the book of the prophet Isaiah. The early Christians, and especially the medievals, they used to call the book of Isaiah the fifth gospel because it so clearly and orderly delineates, spells out, foreshadows all of the works of the gospel. It foretells Christ and his suffering, and it also foretells his bride, the church. And that's what this first reading describes is the church. It begins by talking about foreigners who join themselves to the Lord. These would be Gentiles or pagans. It would be us, actually, descendants of the pagans. There was always this idea in the Old Testament that someday the worship of God would spread from Israel throughout the whole world. That's why the Lord calls Abraham the father of many nations, not the father of one nation, but the father of many nations. And the prophet Malachi talks about how from the rising of the sun to its setting, a pure sacrifice will be offered to God and they will call upon the name of the Lord. This idea of the universal reach of the worship of God to all lands and all peoples. And Isaiah is also talking about this, the foreigners, ourselves, the Gentiles, the pagans, who join themselves to the Lord. We join ourselves to the Lord, of course, through baptism. And then Isaiah lists some facets, some traits, which the church should have. He says that these foreigners who join themselves to the Lord will minister to the Lord and they will serve him. That's self-explanatory. It also says that they will love the name of the Lord. We should not desecrate or profane the name of the Lord. And really, we take the name of the Lord in vain or we bring dishonor to it in two ways. One is when we use the Lord's name irreverently. But the other way is when by our actions, we bring shame to God. We do not act in accord with the gospel. When a Christian acts contrary to the way Christ would want us to act, we in fact scandalize others and we bring shame to the name of Christ. But when we live in accord with the gospel, when we live in accord with the teachings of Christ, we bring honor to Christ. That is how we can love the name of the Lord. And then Isaiah continues and he says that these people will keep the Sabbath free from profanation. I think in all the ways in which the world has negatively influenced the church is through the desecration of the Sabbath. That is one of the ways in which the world has really attacked the church. All of the things which the world places on the Sabbath, which draw us away from what the Sabbath is supposed to be, which is a day to worship and honor the Lord. You notice in the Old Testament that whenever a prophet comes about and he's trying to reform things in Israel, he always has two things which are non-negotiables. First is he reforms the moral lives of Israel. And then the second thing which he always does, which Hezekiah, Elijah, and even our Lord did, is they reform worship. And one of the ways in which they reform worship is by keeping holy the Sabbath. The Sabbath was instituted by God all the way back in Genesis for two reasons. One is it reminds us of creation. It reminds us of the fact that God created us in this act of sheer goodness, sheer love, sheer mercy. God gives us life and his desire that we may share eternal life with him. And the other thing the Sabbath recalls is this idea of rest, but not just physical rest, but rest from all the enemies of mankind. So Israel, they would remember on the Sabbath the fact that God gave them rest from slavery in Egypt. And then the early Christians, because Christ rose on Sunday and they made Sunday the Sabbath in honor of Christ, or Christ made it in honor of himself, they would celebrate the fact that Christ gave them rest from slavery to sin and death through his resurrection. And so there was one day each week that would always be consecrated to 
the Lord so that people may gather to worship him. They may spend the day in prayer with their families and holy conversation. Ultimately, all time belongs to God. But there's one day each week which we really want to be protective of. We want to guard the Sabbath. Because ultimately, if we cannot spend one day each week worshiping God, there's no way we will spend all eternity worshiping God in heaven. So of all the things in the world, all the chaos and the confusion and the fickle things, the one thing you always want to be solid and that you can count on that's sort of a rock just like Christ is your Sabbath day, a day consecrated to the Lord to worship and to and to praise him. And then Isaiah says that those who do these things, they will be brought to the holy mountain of the Lord. They will be joyful. They will offer burnt offerings and sacrifices which are acceptable to God. This, of course, is fulfilled in the sacrifice of Christ. He is the sacrifice par excellence, which fulfills all the Old Testament sacrifices. He offered himself on Good Friday to God the Father in this complete act of self-gift and, and love. And we participate in this sacrifice, of course, by attending Mass. We recall it at every Mass, do this in memory of me, as he said. We also make present the sacrifice of Good Friday because Christ, the same Lord, who offered himself on the cross, is present on our altar, offering himself once again to God the Father. And then we look forward to the ultimate victory of Christ, our own resurrection on the Lord's day. And finally, Isaiah says that these people, all peoples, shall come to this house of prayer. That's ultimately what the church is for. It is to praise God and it is to be a space in which people may come and pray to God, to offer him sacrifice and to glorify him and to give him thanks. I remember a few months ago, I was at a church which I won't name because I don't want to get a phone call from the pastor, but we were celebrating a first mass. A guy had just been ordained and then he was celebrating his first mass. And after mass, myself and one of the priests who was there, who was my formator in the seminary, we were walking around the church because it was a beautiful church. And we were pointing out the various architectural designs and symbolism because that's what priests do, right? And I was very impressed with many things. And then we came to the gathering space right outside the doors of the church and there was a fireplace in it. And I pointed to the fireplace and I said, that's kind of nice. And this priest gave me the look of disdain. You know, it's like when parents give their kids that look of disdain where I knew I said something wrong. And he said, Father, and he only calls me Father now because we're both priests when I'm in trouble. He said, Father, he said, don't ever do that. He said, I've seen this happen too much. If you want to have a gathering space downstairs, that's fine. But he said, as soon as people walk through the doors of the church, everything which they see and which is present must point to the act of worshiping God. He said, otherwise, as soon as you have other things and clutter psychologically, people forget that ultimately the church is a house of prayer. And he said, you cannot have any negotiation or compromise on that. Look at our Lord in the gospel when he flipped tables and drove out the money changers. He said, no, no, no. The temple in his day and the church in ours is meant for prayer. And so that's the ultimate purpose of all things is God. He called us from the darkness of pagan idolatry, the darkness of the Gentiles. He calls us now into the light of the church so that we may receive the gifts of Christ so that we can keep holy his Sabbath, so that we may live in accord with the gospel and that we may gather together and offer him sacrifice and prayer. And ultimately, he may then redeem us and bring us safely to the kingdom of heaven.